Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Rylan Bailey, VP of Investor Relations at Equinox Gold, is back to talk ESG. The simple acronym ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance, can elicit a lot of reactions. For some, it brings about hope and confidence that corporations can enact positive change, while for others, they may see this as inhibitors to growth and profits, or just deceptive greenwashing. In developing my own opinions on ESG, I was given the opportunity to do this interview with Rolin. She brings a very nuanced perspective, having an education in environmental studies, and now leading IR for a growing gold producer with over a $2 billion market cap. What I think you'll take away from this is that ESG done well is a risk mitigation tool. It also acts as a catalyst for companies to identify and track opportunities to optimize their operations. Rolin makes the point that mining is likely the most active and forward-thinking industry as ESG is imperative to their success. So back to my question, is ESG a sham? I'll let you decide, but I think Rolin makes a strong argument that it's a good thing for the people, the planet, and the profits that the market demands. And before we get started, I want to offer up our free masterclass on investor marketing. If you're interested in learning key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, this masterclass covers everything you need to know about how to build a successful investor marketing program for your public company. If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up at creativereturn.ca masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of investor capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca masterclass or click the link in the show notes. And finally, please note that the information contained in this interview is not financial advice, but for entertainment purposes only. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained in this interview. I recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of accredited investment advisors. Now, enjoy the show. Berlin, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Today, we are going to be talking about something that I think it's both topical in the sense of what's been in the market, but is also potentially debatable, and that is the world of ESG. And I'm looking forward to your thoughts on this. Lots of strong opinions. Yes. The best place for us to start is, for anybody who didn't listen to the past episode with you, which was quite recent and very good, was a background on yourself so that we can frame up our discussions. I'll hand it over to you. 
Sure. So I'll start with the company, I guess. So Equinox Gold is a gold producer, obviously. We're an America's-focused gold mining company. We have seven producing mines in California, Mexico, and Brazil. We're building a big project in Ontario, Canada. So we're an America's-focused gold producer, growth-focused. We are you know, continuing to expand our operations and expand our production with the objective of being a million-ounce-a-year gold producer, and we're just over halfway there. And how I came to be in mining is a bit unusual. I actually have a degree in environmental studies and biology and thought I was going to be, you know, working for Greenpeace or be a wildlife biologist when I grew up and, you know, started working in mining in 1995 and just never left because it's such an interesting industry and, you know, I have the best job in the world. So I worked 11 years in finance and now I've been in investor relations since 2006. So it's a bit of an unusual background for someone to be in mining, but it's a I'm thrilled that you asked me to be on this podcast because obviously with my environmental studies and biology background, ESG is pretty near and dear to my heart. And I have conversations all the time with people at cocktail parties who are like, how can you have an environmental studies background and be in mining? How do you live with yourself? And I'm like happy to tell people about all of the incredible benefits and all the incredible positives that mining companies make from an ESG perspective. I love the irony of it. You first told me about it. I was like, that is pretty interesting. So when we talk about ESG, I think people go direct on the environment and they look and they say, okay, mining companies are you know, a burden to the planet. They rape and pillage. First blush kind of thing. And obviously that is wrong when you start thinking deeper about it. But aside from the hype of and some of the obvious of ESG, why is ESG important to, to mining companies and to the mining industry? Where are you seeing the actual benefits coming from this? Well, I mean... The reality of, of running our business is if we're not doing ESG well, we are not going to be able to run our business. If we're not being good environmental stewards, if we're just running around raping and pillaging, to use your words, our permits will get taken away from us, right? So we absolutely have to be good environmental stewards. If we're not engaging positively with communities and making sure that we're bringing benefits to the communities through employment and healthcare and social benefits and infrastructure improvements, like we have an obligation to the communities that we're working in to make sure that we're sharing some of the value of, of the mines that we're operating and, and bringing contributions to them. If we're not doing that, we're going to end up with community blockades and we'll lose our social license to operate. So purely from a business perspective, ESG is absolutely crucial to our business strategy. We can't operate effectively without it. So that's sort of the boots on the ground benefit of ESG. From a corporate perspective, having a strong ESG program reduces risk. We're less likely to have community issues or permitting delays if we've got strong community support and if the government sees us as a good corporate citizen. So it's essential from a risk perspective to have a strong ESG program and strong performance. And from an investor relations perspective, having a solid strategy and showing that we've got good ESG performance should differentiate us from our peers and make us an investment of choice. So if someone's decided to invest in a gold mining company and they're comparing Equinox Gold with someone else who's you know offering kind of the same production levels and kind of the same cash flow. But if we can show that we have a better ESG program and better performance, the investor should choose us because that strong performance reduces the risk of their investment. So there's sort of a multi-pronged reason of why it is important for our company. When you put it together like that, to me, it reframes ESG into more of a, this is a risk mitigation strategy that companies are employing now. And I am curious about the the communication to investors. You know, all things being equal, you have one company that does have a better ESG program. How are you communicating that to investors? And what are the questions they're asking? What does that look like for you? Well, and I think that's sort of one of the key things is that 
we've always been doing this. Mining companies have always been practicing ESG, right? It's It's been a the reality of our business. And like I said, you can't operate effectively or operate at all unless you are doing things right on the ground from an environmental and a social perspective. What's changed in the past few years is that now companies are actually communicating it. So there was sort of about 10, 15 years ago, people were doing ESG reporting and then it kind of fell away. I don't know why, but people sort of stopped doing it. And now it's come back, you know, with a vengeance, (laughs) sort of, because it is a big obligation. ESG reporting is incredibly time consuming to make sure that you've got all the data that you need and that you're crunching the metrics and, you know, comparing apples to apples. Like we have seven, now eight mines across four different countries. Like we have to make sure that the data collection is the same across all those operations so that we can actually collate the data and make sense of it from a reporting perspective. So I think what's changed is that people are doing a better job of reporting it, which is something I'm really excited about because there has always been this, you know, this perception that mining is bad for the environment or bad for communities. And the opposite is true in my experience. I mean, I've been in this industry for almost 28 years. I've seen firsthand the incredible benefits that we can bring to local communities, the environmental cleanup that we do. Like there's often artisanal miners that are, you know, just going out there on the weekends or that's their day job is just going out there and looking for gold or whatever the mineral is. And they're using cyanide and mercury to process it and leaving behind massive environmental destruction and then we as the professional mining company go in there and clean all that up and you know reclaim that land even if it's something that we haven't done personally we're going around and cleaning up the environment healthcare improvements infrastructure improvements we're often working in very remote areas where there's very little employment opportunity very little business opportunity and we can go in there and completely change the social fabric of those communities so the fact that we're finally Getting out there and telling people what we're doing, I think, is incredibly beneficial for the industry. I think there's always been this sort of keep your head down, you know, just do your jobs, do it well, but don't, you know, put your heads up because then the NGOs, the anti-mining groups are going to come out and point at you if you're too visible. And it's nice to see that shift. There's the possibility that it will actually become mandated, like the SEC in the States has been talking about mandating ESG reporting, just like they mandate financial reporting so that investors can have comparable data, right? Right now, there's no regulation around it. So you can report what you want to report. There's no standards for how you report things or what kind of data you report. The bigger companies, and we are one of them, are starting to report to certain reporting frameworks like GRI or SASB or TCFD. So that does put a bit of structure around it, but there's no most companies ESG reports are not audited. So, you know, you don't have sort of those baselines are, is this being reported correctly to make it a comparable metric when you're looking at different investor opportunities. And so I think there will be a shift eventually so that it does become mandated. It brings me back to when we interviewed Lucas Lundin and him saying that for one of his projects in South America, he's like, we're not in the country we don't own the, the resource. We're there as contractors to help the country extract that and extract that value. And it was such an interesting view of, of his work within country or, or the lending groups work within in the countries they work in. And I think it is really positive to start to see uh, mining become recognized as, as actually a steward of social and environmental factors. Because without it, you make such a good point artisanal miners are there. There's resource on the ground that's valuable, but they don't have the further resources there or the scale to actually reclaim or you know put the nature back to the way it was. And that's an obligation of large mining companies or everybody 
but large mining companies are the only ones who can do it. So, well, we have the resources and the expertise, and you know, to be able to do it. But we are absolutely temporary stewards of the land, and that's certainly how we see ourselves. And our chairman, Ross Beatty, is. He's basically an environmentalist masquerading as a miner. Like he's a geologist, but his first love is environmental protection. And if you Google Ross, which I encourage you to do because he's an extraordinary person, all of his philanthropic efforts go to environmental protection and animal protection. And I never really thought about this before, but he said mining is basically one of the only uses of land that will eventually go away. Like if you build if you build a shopping mall or a housing development, that's permanent. That land is forever changed and will never go back to its original state. A mining operation, be it for five years or 50 years, eventually that land will be reclaimed. And the reclamation these years is, you know, extraordinary. Like we had that at our Castle Mountain mine, one of our mines in California. We bought it in 2017 and it had been a previously operating mine that had been shut down down purely because gold prices were low and completely reclaimed. And if you drove past that mine, you would never know that there had been a mining operation there. Like you couldn't differentiate those heap leach pads from the original surrounding environment. It's a great opportunity for those communities to see the benefits of having the mine in operation when they had the jobs and the businesses, and then they saw the, the reclamation where it went back to its original state. And now we're going back in and putting it into operation. So they get those jobs and, and business opportunities back, but they can have those back with the comfort of knowing that you know, 15, 20, 30 years from now, however long that mine operates, eventually it will go back to its original state. So mining really is temporary use of that land. But our obligation as a mining company is to go in there and create this, you know, the skills building, like offer the training program so that people can work at our mine while it's in operations. But now they have those skills that they can transfer to other industries in the region and help them, you know, we run entrepreneurial programs, help people build businesses that will support our mine while it's in operations. And then when it closes, they can use those businesses to support other industries in the region. So that's the true sustainability of a mining project is to build that capacity in the communities that will serve them well beyond the life of the mine. To me, that is, it's a wonderful use of business, of capitalism, in, in, in essence, to be able to do that. I think we could get into the difficulties of measuring that and perhaps on reporting on that. And I do want to talk about that, but before we go there, I am curious about your criticisms of ESG programs, and especially having been in the industry and then also with the environmental sciences background. Where to start there for you? I don't have a criticism of the ESG programs. I mean, anything that you're doing is fantastic. The criticism would be, I suppose, that as you know, wearing my environmental hat is I always wish we could do more. But the reality is, is we have to run a profitable business. Like if we're not generating profits, our business will not survive, right? We need to create a sustainable, profitable business first. You know, when the margins get tight, like we saw last year when inflation went through the roof and the gold price dropped and the margins got really, really skinny, it's hard sometimes for companies that are capital constrained to justify continuation of their ESG programs. They're always going to be doing the baseline stuff. Like you're always going to making sure that you've got your environmental protection measures in place. You're always going to uphold the agreements that you have with your communities to make sure you're bringing benefits, but you can't go above and beyond in circumstances like that when the treasury gets a bit skinny. And so that's a frustration. I would love for us to be doing more and bigger and better, you know, everywhere we go. So then the important thing as a business is to make sure that you are, you know, continuing your baseline efforts, but also finding opportunities that are good for the environment and good for the business. For example, you know, like one of the easy things for us 
to do when we were looking at our climate action strategy was to make our haul trucks more efficient. So if we make sure that we take a little bit more time at the loading bay to make sure the haul trucks are filled to their capacity, to their load design, now we've got less haul truck trip, reducing our wear and tear on the machines because they're driving back and forth less, reducing our tire use, we're reducing our diesel consumption, and that reduces our GHG emissions. So all those are all beneficial for the environment, but also beneficial for the business because we're ultimately cutting costs. So, I mean, you have to be making sure that your team understands that this is not just, you know, greenwashing. We're not just trying to make our business look green from a reporting perspective. We're trying to find business efficiencies that make us operate more efficiently, save costs, but also benefit the environment. So those are the kinds of strategies that you need to focus on. And then when, you know, the gold price does go up or whatever your business is and your margins are bigger, then you can start to make those sort of investments, those upfront investments that will be better for the environment long term, but also make your business more efficient longer term. You know, to to the point we discussed earlier of having ESG be more of a risk management play, but then now also to your point here is one of very much optimization. How do you use these environmental and social and governance programs to to really as a as a kind of a lever to optimize the hell out of the business? And so like with the the haul trucks as you just made an example there, I really like that. We just signed three power agreements for green power at some of our Brazil mine sites. So they're going to reduce our GHG emissions, but they're also going to save us, we expect, about $70 million over 10 years. So it's a win-win, right? Why not look for those opportunities? And some of them have an upfront investment, but if it's nominal when compared to the long-term benefits, both to the business and from an ESG perspective. Yeah, you can run the economics back and it makes sense. Can we take this as a quick opportunity? Are there any other areas where... You've seen improvements within Equinox that the listeners potentially could implement within their companies. And, you know, don't be giving away the trade secrets here, but like, are there things there that that would benefit their ESG programs, but also themselves as an organization? Oh, sheesh, that's hard to answer. I mean, obviously, I don't know what industry everybody's in, but certainly engaging the team. Like, it's one thing for us at corporate to sit here and go, okay, we want to have better ESG performance, and here's our strategy, and here's our policy, and yay us, right? But it's the people on the ground. It's it's the people at the mine sites who are actually implementing those strategies and making the difference and making sure that we can achieve our ESG target. So engaging the team, I think, is key. And that haul truck optimization that was at our mine in Mexico, Mexico. And it's the team that came up with that idea. It wasn't corporate, it wasn't the general manager, it was the guys on the ground and the women on the ground who are actually doing the mining that said, you know, we could probably do this a little bit better. And then they ran a bunch of different scenarios. I think there was four or five scenarios that the team themselves came up with. And that was the one that made the most sense from a near-term implementation perspective. So there's so many people who are creative and insightful, and they're the ones that have the best insight into how the business is operating. And then if you're engaging your team, now they feel like they're part of something. They feel like they're part of making improvements as opposed to just having you know new business practices sort of foisted on them. They feel like their opinions are being heard and they're part of you know the team. So I think that would be the number one thing is just hold a contest. I don't know, whatever it looks like, but just make sure that your team is involved. And when people are coming up with those ideas themselves it's that much more exciting to be able to implement them and see the benefits. Interesting. Yeah. Back to thinking through kind of an investor relations standpoint, they're communicating the programs and what you do. And the, the question is, is are investors interested and with ESG performance or are they merely checking boxes? And if they are interested, what are the questions or what are the areas they're focusing on? What have you experienced when talking with investors? 
Well, there's no one size fits all answer to that because it really depends on the investor. The bigger companies, like the bigger institutional investors are absolutely focused on this and interested in some of them have an analyst or even in some of the bigger firms, they have an entire team of people that are focused purely on ESG performance. Sometimes it'll just be one person who joins an investor meeting. Sometimes we have separate ESG calls where they walk through mind by mind, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing? Why have you had these problems? Are you fixing them? So this is a really detailed run through of what we're doing on the ground at each of our mine sites and then the sort of general corporate strategy. So those are the really big firms that can obviously afford to have those kinds of teams. It's always been a bigger focus in Europe than it has been in North America, but we've certainly seen a shift over the last few years with the North American investors you know, actively taking an interest and in asking those questions. Whether they're checking a box or not is irrelevant, really. I think it's great that it's part of the conversation now and that people are actively looking at it. We do get the occasional uh, investor who is like, this is a waste of time and money. Like when we published our first sort of comprehensive ESG report last year, and then again, when we published our climate action report this year, I got a few emails like, what a waste of time. But if that's what they think, they don't understand the industry very well and they don't understand investing very well because this is something that we've always been doing. It's not like we're all of a sudden pumping a bunch of money into ESG. It's just that we've finally got the capacity within our team now to be able to report on it. So it's something that we've been doing since you know the beginning of the company, but now we're reporting on it, which is a positive for the company and a positive for our investors. And if they genuinely think that we can run our business without having an ESG strategy, then they're not very informed because it's it's absolutely essential to reduce risk and to be able to maintain our permits and our social licenses you and I have discussed. So we kind of just say thank you very much for your feedback and, <laughs> and so, <laughs> on your um, way. Uh, yeah. Can you take us further into some of the the meetings you've had with investors and you know are there even areas they queue in on and perhaps things that you didn't realize that they would be so interested in. I want to get behind the scenes. I want to know what these analysts, these investment firms are interested in from the ESG side? Well, it changes. And I think that's influenced by the media and the sort of the global dialogue. Like obviously a few years ago, was it, I can't remember when it was, but with the Black Lives Matter movement in the States, people were asking about diversity and that kind of thing. There's a big you know, climate change and the climate action. And so now, you know, GHG emissions and what's your net zero date and those kinds of things are topical right now because it's in the media, right? So that's something that they focus on. Diversity is certainly, it was racial diversity a few years ago. Now there's a big focus on gender diversity. So that's a conversation that's coming up with a lot of our investors. Um, So I think it just, it kind of ebbs and flows based on what's in the media and, and based on the questions that they're getting from their own clients. I think that's been a shift is that it used to be that we were reporting ESG performance to our investor base. I get the sense that those investors are now having to report ESG performance to their clients, right? So it's sort of a, we're not the only ones doing the reporting now. They're also having to put together reports that they push out to their clients to demonstrate that they are doing their due diligence and they have made sure that we're being good corporate citizens and that we're doing everything that we can. Again, it's a risk reduction activity. They want their clients to know that they're putting their money into stocks that are doing the right thing from a planet and a social and an employment perspective. So, Can we talk about the reporting then? When you look at this, it's if we were to talk GFRS and GAP and all the kind of accounting rules that are out there in Sarbanes-Oxley and all of these things we have to jump through to provide 
financial information to give a financial picture into the company and its performance, it's very standardized. With the world of ESG reporting isn't standardized, but more there are some standards that are coming in. What do you work to and what do you see that's out there right now? Well, we had a big discussion about that before we launched our first ESG report. And just it, that's one complaint we get from investors, not for us particularly, but for the industry, that there is no standardization. And they would prefer that everybody be reporting to the same metrics so that they can do a comparison. Like if one company is reporting to GRI and one's doing SASB and one's sort of just picking whatever the framework is that they want to use, and some of them are implementing the Mining Association of Canada towards sustainable mining protocols, and someone else is doing the World Gold Council's RGMPs, like there's just no consistency. And so there's no apples to apples comparison that they can do. And so I think there will be more regulation over the years. And they're even asking, you know, like in in the Canadian mining industry, everybody has to follow uh, NI43-101. It's a reporting obligation. So investors are pushing for that, to have one reporting standard that everybody has to follow. So we chose to go with GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, and also with SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, because those seem to be the most common uh, metrics that investors were asking for. Our ESG report is quite focused on our investor base because the mine sites themselves do community-focused reporting. So we're sort of filling that gap, right? Like the mine sites are always communicating with our um, community partners and putting out, you know, performance metrics that matter more to the communities. And then we try to put something out that matters more to the investment community while still having a, you know, a community component in there. But then like our climate action report that we just put out was using the TCFD framework, the Task Force on Financial Related Climate Disclosures. Yeah, and then it's just sort of picking a framework and sticking with it so that then you can start to show the data comparables year over year. Because what our investors really want to see is improvements, right? And so it's, you know, you start small, you start where you can, and then every year you try to add a couple more data metric points. And every year you try to show, okay, this is how we performed in 2021 compared to 2020 compared to 2019 to show that you are continuing to improve. That's the key thing, right? It's not, are you the best in the industry? Is it, are you continuing to demonstrate performance within your company? Because that's, shows progress and that's what they want to see that's been the the real takeaway from the conversations that we have with investors is are you improving your performance year on year actually improving making making progress what have been the takeaways you've had because as i understand you play a huge role in putting together these reports is it an exercise of having to herd a bunch of cats of getting the information in and how do you make sure that when they're bringing that information in it is standardized and that that you as an as an organization feel confident in what you're reporting well thankfully i don't have to do that side of it that's done by our esg team but it is incredibly challenging and that's been one of the reasons why we were a little bit delayed compared to our peers in reporting i mean like we've been a you know a solid mid-tier producer since 2020 but we really only put out our first comprehensive report last year because we had done so much M&A and added so many new assets to our portfolio that we did have to go and say, you know, how do we standardize that data? How do we make sure that everybody's sending in the the same kind of data in the same format? And then you don't want it to be a burden for the mine sites because they're busy enough just trying to run their business, right? So how can we streamline that data collection process so that we're not asking too much of them, but we're getting the data that we need. And then it has to be all in the same database so that you can collate it and crunch the numbers and make sure it makes sense. And then every year you sort of find out new things or, you know, add more um, 
data collection point to what you're reporting, which actually changes what you're reporting to a certain extent. So you'll see shifts. We're going to be putting out our next report in the first week of May, and you'll see shifts really still in how we're reporting data this year. And uh, at first glance, it might look like things have gotten worse, but it's actually gotten better. The reason that, you know, like, for example, our environmental incidents, the number's higher than it was last year, only because we've got everybody reporting last year. Like, you know, sometimes people, there might be a small little, you know, they spill half a liter of oil. They're like, oh, it's not a big enough deal to report it. Now we've done enough education on the ground that this is not a negative. Like we want you to be reporting every single thing that happens because now we understand was that happened. Now we can research into why it happened. Now we can put improvements in place to prevent these things happening in the future. And if it happened at your mine site, it's probably happening at other mine sites. So we can share those learning amongst all of the operations to make our entire company better. So it's been a real on the ground education process to convince people that we want you to be reporting. You're not going to get in trouble. We want to know what's going on so that we can make our operations better and make everything safer. And so we've seen our environmental incidents go up because everybody's embraced that and now they are reporting, which is a hugely important thing. But if you just looked at the data at face value, you'd be like, oh my goodness, you know, things have gotten worse. So that's my job is to sort of take a bird's eye view and say, okay, these are the numbers that my ESG team is reporting. How can I communicate that to the investment and our community partners so that they understand what that data means? That's my job. Yeah, fascinating. That's a really difficult position to be in because if you have more people reporting on more environment incidents, but you know, what is the scale of that incident? Was it a quart of oil or was it a barrel of oil that spilled? Well, and that's why we have metrics. Like we have a, a minor, low, moderate. Right. Yeah. Know, the framework you work with. Have a, yeah. You have a reporting guidelines and they have to fit it into one of those buckets. Or like from a GHG emissions perspective, for example, we just announced our, our first target of having a 25% reduction in our GHG emissions by 2030. The fact is we're a growing company. We're building a mine in Ontario. We're planning three expansions, you know, a project in Brazil, California, and Mexico. Our GHG emissions are going to go up. Every time we build a new mine, every time we expand a mine, everything's getting bigger, right? More trucks, more everything. Our GHG emissions are going to continue to grow until we've sort of hit that stable you know, million ounce target of production. And then we can look at the company from that perspective and go, okay, from this sort of new baseline, what can we put in place to reduce our GHG emissions longer term and eventually get to that net zero? So that's going to be a communication challenge for me is like some of those analytics firms, like there's all these analytics firms that look at your environmental reporting and they just look at the data points and they don't look at the nuances of, of what those data and they might go, oh, well, you know, Equinox Gold isn't doing very well. Their GHG emissions are going up. Okay, but why are they going up? So I have to make sure that they that I can communicate that effectively so people understand that this is a longer term strategy and we're a growing company and, you know, it's all working toward this improvement, like annual improvements. I'm sorry, I'm not articulating this very well, but just because our GHG emissions are going up doesn't mean we're not doing well. It just means that the operation itself is changing. So I want to build on what you're saying here, because I went into the climate action report that you guys published for the previous year and, and saw a table in there articulating the plan of reducing emissions, although you're going to be a growing company. And so I recall seeing a business as usual target. By 2030, this is the emissions we would have as a business as usual doing no changes. But here's where we will apply these improvements. And so in reading through that, I, to me, I just I was like, wow, there's a tremendous amount of thought that goes into this. I think this is the difference here, actually. I want to point this out. Having spoken with you and gone through these documents, 
it is very clear the amount of work that goes into this from, well, from Equinox and I'm sure other organizations out there. But that's where I think you can start separating the wheat from the chaff, from those who say they're doing ESG good work kind of thing, and those who are actually doing it when you look at the amount of analysis. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that because it's time consuming and it's capacity and like the smaller companies don't have the people to be able to do that reporting. I'm sure they're doing all of this stuff, but it's like getting the team together that can, you know, put in an implemented data collection system and the database and crunch the numbers and get the support from the finance team to understand what the numbers mean and then put it all together from a reporting perspective. The smaller companies don't have the financial or the people on the team to be able to report effectively. So I think, I mean, that's one of the challenges, right, is if it does get regulated, I think that'll be great because then people will have to bring in the person that's focused on that. But if you try to just do it on the side of your desk as an investor relations team or the finance team, it's, it's incredibly cumbersome. Yeah. And that's where it, it starts. The inconsistencies comes off and it probably looks very high level. Yeah. You do make a good point there. And, and that's actually in it. what's going to happen if it comes a regulatory obligation and another cost burden for these smaller operations. I mean, that's yeah. So a question that came from after going through all the documents that you guys have published is, does doing this work make your management team think much longer term? And, and I came to the conclusion, the answer would be yes, that as an organization, you start thinking, you know, years and years ahead and not just in quarters or, or in years from that, what time frames do you discuss when you're putting these programs together and you're looking for improvements? Well, I would hope that we're always thinking longer term, right? That's what you should be doing as a business is you've, we've got our 12-month plan. Even then we revise it, you know, every six months. We've got our 12-month plan and our sort of our five-year plan. So you're always thinking longer term. But I think from an ESG perspective, with anything with the business, you have to think long term, but manage short term, right? So like with this whole everybody putting out their net zero target, like what is it net zero 2050? And kind of everybody said, oh, yeah, we're going to be net zero by 2050. Who cares? I, I, I'm not going to be working here in 2050, right? None of probably nobody in this company is going to be working here in 2050. I hope the company is still thriving. That's our long term plan to, to build a sustainable business that's going to be operating for decades. But we won't be here to be held accountable, so I think for all of our corporate objectives, be it ESG or, or operations or anything, it should be short-term milestones that make our targets and then report performance to our shareholders so they can actually judge us on our performance and whether we got there or not. So that's for like our 25% by 2030. You know, it's a few years down the road. It's ambitious, but it's achievable. And it gives us these short-term, small bite milestones that we can try to achieve because that's how you need to manage your business on the ground or, you know, even 10 years down the road, nobody can think like it doesn't make any sense to try to build objectives into your business for those kinds of long-term targets because the business changes so often. Just reminds me of this economic quote, in the long term, we're all dead. And so, you know, we shouldn't be that concerned, but I hear what you're saying there. I want to talk about the diversity and inclusion piece there. How does that work within an Equinox and what you're doing there? Because there's a very important aspect to it, but then there's also merit. And how do you guys manage that? Well, 
again, on the ground at the mine sites, we always hire locally as much as we possibly can. Like 99% of our employment base in Brazil, for example, is from local communities. So that's where the training programs come in to make sure that people have the skills that they need to be able to work at your mine site. And you have the intention of making sure that your employment base reflects the diversity of the communities in which you're operating, be it gender or racial it's not always possible. Like there's in a lot of the places where we're working, you know, culturally, women have not traditionally held these roles. And so it's a real education process to say, hey, you can do this job, right? But it's not just the women that you're educating, you're having to, you know, sort of change a mindset where traditionally women haven't necessarily worked out of the home or, you know, haven't driven haul trucks. Like, you know, how many women do you know that have driven a haul truck in their career? It's just, even in North America, it's just less common, right? So it's an education process. It's making sure that there are no barriers that we're creating that would make the environment unwelcome. So you, it's, you know, it's an education process with the team to make sure that everybody is welcoming and, and we're not creating anything that makes people uncomfortable. So that's part of it. It's making sure that the hiring process is inclusive. And a lot of companies, I'm not sure what we're doing on the ground, but a lot of companies like don't include names on resumes that the, you know, for the first few sections where you're trying to you know, create your shortlist so that you know that you're just hiring purely based on merit. At the corporate office, it's easier because there's a lot of women, you know, that obviously are are well advanced. And we do have, I think, 25 to 30 percent of our executive team are female. But it is a tough one because like right now, there's such a push to have more racial and gender diversity on the boards and in the executive teams. But you, like you said, you have to run your business like you have to make sure that you're hiring people who have the skill sets that you need. And as a woman, I don't want to be put in a job just because I'm checking a box of diversity, right? Like I want to know that I'm there because I'm good at my job. And I think some women are starting to feel like they're being offered these positions just because they're a woman. And then it makes them start to doubt their own credentials. And you kind of say, no, we really genuinely want you here because you're incredibly good at your job and you're adding value. Yeah, it does also get us a, you know, a checklist on the, the uh, gender diversity points, but you're here because we want you to be here. And so I think it's sort of the pendulum swung almost too far where women are starting to feel like they are a check mark, and that's not a very good feeling. But, and then the other struggle that we have at some of the mindsets is we just don't have the people like heavy duty mechanics, for example, they're few and far between. So we're going to hire whoever we can find that's going to fill that job because it's a critical job and we would love to hire someone with gender diversity or racial diversity, but we just need a heavy duty mechanic, whoever that person is. So you've got to run your business first and foremost, but I think you have to make sure from a cultural perspective that it's as open and welcoming and diverse as possible because we've all seen that in our businesses that having multiple perspectives just makes the business stronger, right? You don't want everybody who has the same opinion and you're kind of funneling down the same path. You're not going to be creative. You're not going to be innovative and you're not going to run your business effectively if everybody's got the same opinion. I want to change gears here as we've gone through this. And I think you have a really neat perspective having been with Equinox since I think you're the sixth employee in and now over a thousand employees globally. If I think you, we're close to 8,000 globally. Oh, geez. Entire workforce, like contractors and employees. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So if you were the CEO of a junior resource exploration or development company, what would you place the most priority on in a ESG program? Where would you start? 100% community. 
I think the environmental stuff is easy, right? Just like, don't be a jerk. Like, be careful, you know, don't make a mess. If you do clean it up immediately, like just be responsible, right? But you have to have strong relationships with the communities. We are, like you said, we're temporary stewards of the land. We are visitors to these communities. We need to be good neighbors and we need to make sure that they are getting equitable, can't look how be equitable, but make sure that they are getting value from this project that is for a short time going to be in their communities. That's, I think, the number one thing. If you're not respectful and inclusive and engaging and soliciting their feedback and asking their opinions and making sure that they are involved in every single stage of development from the first time that you set foot on that ground, you are not going to be successful. Mm. Okay. And how about any final thoughts for CEOs and IR pros about ESG programs and investor communications? Just start doing it. I think it's everybody wants to make sure that their first report out of the gate is wonderful and it looks amazing and it's got all this data and and it's comprehensive and it tells this great story. But if you wait until you have all of those pieces in place, you're going to fall behind the eight ball and you're never going to be able to have as much information as you want. So just start small, like share your values, right? What are your company values? Who are you as a team? What's your management approach to these things? Even if you don't have quantitative data that you can provide, you can provide the qualitative stuff that gives people a sense of your integrity and who you are as a team and what your objectives are. And then you can start to layer in those different data metrics as you collect them. But I just think just start. And that's, you know, again, that's the number one thing we hear from investors is they just want to know that you're thinking about it and they want to know what you're doing and then they want to see progress. So even if you add, you know, two more data points every year to your report, it's showing progress, it's showing intent, and it's showing that you understand that this is an important part of your business. So just start the process, however small it is, so that you can get the ball rolling. I think that's such a a great point is just just start because then you can layer on and build and build and build and, and well, that starting point have, can be completely qualitative yeah and you, we all have that where you don't want to show anything to anybody until you think it's perfect but it's never going to be perfect this is not a perfect system and every year your business is going to change and you know the you know the focus of what investors are looking for the you know the global conversation is going to change so you're always going to be playing catch up but if you start now at least it gives you a, a launching point and you can build from there Rilin, unless you have anything else you want to add, I just want to say like, I've really enjoyed this because it, it put me to the test of going in and actually reading through the reports that Equinox has published. And the conversation we've had has really opened my eyes to, to how ESG is not just a feel-good program. It's, oh, not at all. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so neat. And I'm glad we could do this interview. So, so thanks again for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Always fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.